Welcome again to An Abundant Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers. This podcast is a place where we discuss, talk, and explore regenerative solutions that can be worked into our lives now. Things that are actually happening, new ideas, even things that are coming down the pipe. We're talking about it here, so thank you so much for joining us and trying to live more regeneratively. Today on the podcast, we have a recording of my talk and the subsequent talks at Golden Coast Meadery a few weeks ago. Frank Goldbeck is the guy who started Golden Coast Meadery, an amazing guy, he facilitated and he's leading, and I am speaking first, and then I'm followed by people who represent one of the five steps or multiple of the five steps. And this model is something that needs to start up everywhere. Because what we're doing is I'm showcasing the people in these communities that are doing regenerative work and people then can learn from them, support them, emulate them, differentiate, create their own business, you know, create that ecosystem of local business that we need to support our, our, ourselves and our environment. This needs to happen everywhere in every community. And this is the first one. So dive in, check it out and, you know, get inspired. So I'm just going to use some amazing quotes. So uh, this narrative of normal is crumbling on a systemic level. Our systems of money, politics, energy, medicine, education, and more are no longer delivering the benefits they once did or seemed to. Their utopian promise, so inspiring a century ago, recedes further every year. Millions of us know this more and more. We hardly bother to pretend otherwise, yet we seem helpless to change. Helpless even to stop participating in, in industrial civilization's rush over the cliff. This is Charles Eisenstein's um, The More Beautiful World. He really articulates what's going on well because he attacks things from a holistic perspective and then reframes. We'll get more to that in a second. Behaviorally challenging kids are challenging because they're lacking the skills not to be challenging. Now, while this may seem circuitous, this is really critical for all teachers and educators and anyone trying to spread new ideas. All right, so keeping these things in mind, we're at this point in history and we need to understand our audience. So who am I? Who am, who am I to talk about this? Where am I coming from, right? Well, I'm a husband. Um, I left being a musician um, really because I became a husband um, and because my wife got cancer. My wife got thyroid cancer um, and what happened was we went by the book, we listened to them, we did what they said. My wife was getting thyroid cancer when it was very rare. It is now common for women in their 20s to get it. It was not common when it happened. 
But basically, we did the, the surgery. We did the radiation. Well, three months later, she got melanoma the size of a shark bite up her leg. And we're like, that's crazy. You're not like tanning there. You know what I mean? Because we're thinking melanoma, sun cancer, right? So I'm like asking the doctor some like, you know, intermediate level questions. And they're getting freaked out. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to put the gas on. And I start asking hard questions. And they get really uncomfortable. And I'm like, listen, if you can't tell me, and you're going to contradict the other doctors about how long it's safe to have like my wife in contact with my newborn child or my one-year-old boy when she's radioactive, that you're going to like play this game with me? No, we're not doing this. And that like ended my trust of a fundamental pillar in this world that Charles Einstein talking about. He's talking about a world that we grew up, a story we grew up, that we thought, like, doctors know. Who am I to know? A doctor knows. They know best. They're wrong. Who am I to question, right? Now we question a lot, don't we? We live in a completely different age. Yeah. <laughs> so one in two people will develop cancer in their lifetime. That's becoming a fast reality that we really need to um, face. And I have tried to face this in my own life because my wife kept getting cancer. And I have two young children that she had cancer when she was pregnant. So in my mind, I'm like, they're gonna get cancer. Or they could get cancer, right? So I'm like on hyperdrive to try to figure this out. So like I said, I'm a father. Uh, I love my boys so much and I really worry about the chemicals, um, the toxins, the deficiencies that they're regularly experiencing. Chronic illness, it's gone up, you know, almost 30%, 1994 to 2006. That was 10 years ago. People are saying now that it's one out of two children is gonna have an autoimmune disorder, um, or has one in, in childhood. Auti autism rates, you know, they're skyrocketing. There's reasons for these things. There has to be, right? And it's my job as a dad to figure out, and my job as a husband to figure out my, you know, we find ourselves in these roles and that's where I am. And then I was a teacher, so I wanted to be close to home to take care of my wife. My wife has some days where she's really active. Some days she can't get out of bed. And that's just her reality. And so I don't want her to ever have to feel like she has to work again. Um, and we don't have disability or anything fancy like that. Um, we pay out of, uh, for healthcare out of pocket, a lot of money. Um, but I want to do my best. And so I was a teacher uh, to get that good healthcare. <laughs> and, and it worked well for a little while. Um, but I left teaching. I was kind of a quirky teacher. I was a holistic teacher, really. And that's what got me into lots of trouble. Because I kept stepping on other people's toes. Like, why are you telling them this about science? I'm the science teacher. Like, but it's reading and writing, you know? Right? Isn't that fair? It's reading and writing. So I got into all sorts of trouble. Stepped on all sorts of toes. But while I did it, I, I learned fundamentally what was going on with their schooling and the crime, the slow motion tragedy that it really is. And it's us dumbing each other down. 
It's us creating a society that is purposely stupid and lacking in fundamental critical thinking skills and logic. So I started teaching those things. I, yeah, I got in all sorts of trouble. So the kids, they had only a, a few options. They could get into trouble, they could join the military to get free college so they could you know, catch up to their friends who um, go into debt and go to college or get a scholarship to go to college. And when I was a teacher, I don't know what it is right now, but when I was a teacher, I did the research. Only 20,000 kids in America got full ride scholarship. So why are we feeding them this fantasy still? This is stuff that was my bread and butter. This is stuff that I got like crazy about as a teacher. I was like, I, I used to do presentations to teachers before I was all permaculture and everything. So these questions, you know, these were the things that like made me like feel like I couldn't be a full person because when you have someone that trusts you, coming to you wanting those answers, solutions, and you don't have them, or it's politically incorrect to like share them, or it's politically like, it depends on where you are, right, in the country, where, what's, what's correct and what's not. So I was in a very conservative area. <laughs> so I couldn't make certain suggestions. And so permaculture really actually solved that a lot for me. Um, because I could actually give non-political responses that were rooted in nature and science, that could give them actual solutions, that they could turn into actual businesses, that suddenly deflated that whole like red-blue team thing, and it became, wow, that's really useful, and it does that too? Huh, why aren't we already doing it? And it's, you're the person, if you feel like, why aren't we already doing this, right? If you're like, what's wrong with this? There's, I see a problem. It's like, you are the solution. Or you're the person to tell everyone so we form a solution together, right? So I became this permaculture gardener. And I got really into it. Um, I got so into it that I started you know, doing a two-acre garden I managed with a knife. PBS came and filmed. I was growing like food in 140-degree soil. It was really nuts. And then I became this author. Got all my books here, too. Um, I wrote this book and it made as much money as I take home after taxes from working as a teacher in a whole year. So it was like, wow, what am I doing being a teacher arguing with you guys? <laughs> and so like I was, you know, I'm still all friends with my students. I still work with all my students. The families still work with me. So it wasn't a loss. <laughs> um, so I created these books. It turned into an online course. I actually tried to form a school first. And that failed. <laughs> but we failed upward, and it turned into an online course that helped way more people. Um, these are the books in Africa. These are the books translated into Spanish. These are the five translations that um, are in process. Several of them are the Arabic, the Polish, and the Spanish are out. The Italian and the French, I'm still formatting. I just got all, things got crazy. Um, so this book I recently came out with, uh, totally reframes permaculture for a lot of people. They're like, it's a design science. Da -da 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 -da. And they're like, it's the garden, right? But permaculture is used as an adjective all the time, guys. Permaculture business, you know, a permaculture like house. We have a permaculture kitchen. You know, per permaculture chef, it's used as an adjective. And so we're really trying to describe our holistic interaction with nature when we use it as an adjective. 
So that's what I always went with because that's what everyone's always using and that's what we're actually talking about. And that's what actually unifies all of the regenerative industries is when we start using permaculture as a generalist adjective to describe working with nature. Permaculture design's great, but is that how you design a business? No. But the concept of being permaculture is. You know what I mean? All right, so anyway, that's what I really did with this. I partnered with people all over the globe, over two dozen uh, experts in their fields, uh, people that you probably know. It's all cited. And if you guys know permaculture books, there's been like three that are actually cited. You know? You have like uh, Dave Jackie's work. You have, um, who else? Who else? Do we have Bills? Uh, Eric Tonsmeyer with Dave Jackie? There we go, it's not flipping out now. So we've got all these like books out there, but none of them are cited. So like, where'd you get that information from about uh, glaying and that pond ceiling? It's from UC Davis, actually. It's from a, a footnote in a paper, basically. It's hardly anything. And that's the source of all that information on glay. So not something you can stand a lot of people on that bridge. It's a little thin. It's important to know where these sources are coming from and be honest about them. So, and so that three books later in the permaculture progression, we're not pulling that out and being like, this is crap. You know, we gotta cite these things so we can go back and be like, well, where was that study actually from? Anyway, so um, that's what we did. But the problem that I realized along the way is it was too complex. Yeah, I've improved upon Bill's work. I've, I've updated it with all the new research. And I've expanded the, the, like, the permaculture like spread. It's too complex. It's too long of a story. This is why it has to be five steps. I mean, think about all the popular videos. The top three tips. The number one this, the do-do-do-do. It's simple, it's basic, and you know what? We're not dealing with eighth or ninth grade reading levels. Guys, we're dealing with fifth. Okay, remember fifth grade? No. That's where we mostly are as a group. We must break it down to that level so that their fifth grader can go home and convince them the same level of language, that this is true. And then they go and go to their law firm and say, yes, they're reading at the same level in the law firm. So we need to get to a higher level. And the only way is by breaking it down so that we actually can get to the point of our story in that elevator conversation. What are you doing today? I'm doing permaculture. See you later. <laughs> you didn't get anything out. They're not going to remember that word. It has to be, oh. Well, we're regenerating the local climate and water or, you know what I mean, we're building soil because it's trapping carbon. What do you mean? Well, all organic matter is mostly CO2. Really? Yeah. What's photosynthesis? I don't remember. They don't remember. We were not taught science on purpose. We are actually taught science almost as an accident. They don't want to teach, they've, they've been gutting our science for years. I mean, why is the water cycle lacking condensation when you go to the EPA's website? True. 
that's a little little like it's so basic. Why is the carbon cycle like not clear to everyone that it has to go through photosynthesis first? Everyone's like, oh no, we'll make a mechanical thing and trap it and turn it into something. It'll be great. Like actually, you know, if you want to trap carbon out of the atmosphere, it's photosynthesis, and that's it. And they're like, oh no, we're gonna turn it into bio bio char. First it was living. So anyway, um, so step one, we gotta build soils. We've got a lot of issues with, um, with soil loss. We've heard a lot about it. We've got this dead zone. We've, these headlines are pretty common, right? We're running out of soil. Time Magazine is less than 60 years left. That was a few years ago. We know the, the carbon figures. But do you guys know this fact that it's just organic matter in the soil? And the amount of room in the soil is astonishing. It goes beyond the amount of petrochemicals we burned. And the, there's a history behind that of tillage and agriculture. So this is the carbon cycle. The green lines are where we sequester. Red lines are release. And then you have um, like combustion, which I made black because it's black. And then diffusion. And that's why the oceans are acidified. It's really, really simple. All these things go into soil sequestration and then fossilized carbon. I guess you could put biochar on there, but I did. So a field corn, this is rattan lal. This is what a lot of Eric Tonsmeyer's book, Carbon Farming Solution, is based on rattan lal, Ohio State professor's work. Um, the net primary productivity of field corn per hectare is 400 times more than the annual increase in atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide. 400 times every year. It's how we're handling it. Have you guys seen the video What's yet? Net primary so all the carbon that it's actually trapping uh -huh. is an enormous amount of carbon. And that's in its stock is 97% carbon. And then the root zone is trapping so much carbon. What's going on is we're tilling it. Do you guys know that most of the CO2 released in the atmosphere is not your cars, not the fires? You can literally watch this on, from, from like YouTube. NASA, a year in CO2 it's called. Late winter, early spring, something goes on. And then the whole sky goes red. By midsummer, it's gone. What's going on is the carbon is being completely sequestered into the soil and the plants. And then we take the plants away, we leave it exposed, and then we till it. And then all the carbon that all the roots have done is released into the sky, all this dust, the physically, that, all that silt and all, all that's leaving, it's all carbon too. And you can see it, the sky turns red, and it's timing. You're like, what is going on? We're, we're driving all, we're all going to the beach, we're all barbecuing, and it's clear skies, no CO2. That's what's going on. Nature is ready to explode. No-till is about to like take over and make it so that we don't have to worry about this. We also have incredible things happening with nano clay. Have you guys heard about this? For years they've been trying to get clay to, to like be like in the water enough so when they water it on the sand, it goes in. Never does that. 
It all sits on the top of the like, ah, why? And then they can't plant anything. Yep. The clay is on the ground. But nano clay, they just figured this out and patented it. It's real. They water into the soil on top, and it goes in. And they can plant trees in it, and they grow because it facilitates bacteria and fungi. It's crazy, but it's happening. Like the big breakthrough, I mean, Neil Speckman, I love him. I love his work. We need that. But we just like hit like the nitrous button on the car. Like we're about to like regreen like deserts like we never even thought possible. So it's super exciting. Um, another side of this is the fact that we need all of our soils to be alive. So the stuff that's actually creating nutrients for our plants, the stuff that's actually sequestering the carbon, in the, in the, not in our climate here, but in the cold temperate climate and where it's humid, 47% of the carbon in the soil, which we say carbon, it's the soil structure. I mean, carbon's a structure for everything, you know what I mean? So, so it's the structure. That loam, that deep soil in the, in, the, in the temperate, cold temperate, half of it's made by fungi pulled out of the atmosphere. Partnering with plants, plants are doing the making the sugars, the photosynthesis with carbon from the atmosphere. That's what, I mean, that's what we're all eating when we're eating our lollipops. We're just getting extra carbon. <laughs> all right. So two to three feet of soil a year, six tons of carbon uh, per acre. This is what Elaine was doing in South Africa. It's totally possible. How did she do it? She brought in compost. That's how Singing, uh, singing Frog Farm, you guys know about that? That's how they're doing it too. She inoculates it and then what happens to the dead soil beneath? It becomes soil. It changes color and suddenly there's no line between the two and so that's where the soil came from. She brings the compost, the compost life goes, ah! And then it goes boom, and it goes way deep, and you're like, where did the soil come from? It was already there. And it was them breaking that non-soluble element in the soil up repeatedly, making it bioavailable into the cycle. And this happened to me. You can even do this at home. I mean, you get good compost on, you lay it down, and you dig down every once in a while, you'll hit that, that, that different layer. And at a certain point, if it's healthy, and you're working with good plants and stuff, and you have high enough moisture levels, <laughs> it'll like, wait, where is it? And you won't know where it is. It'll disappear. And you see this all the time with your static compost. How many people have done static compost, where it's just, you just throw stuff in it? Oh. The, the, the bottom disappears, and you're like, I don't know where the soil ends are beginning. This is great. <laughs> all right, so this is really cool. If we take all the carbon in the atmosphere and turn it into soot, it accounts for 0.081 inches. It's only 2.1 millimeters thick of, of soot that we need to add to all the agricultural soils. Keep in mind this is 2006, 2005. So the numbers are always shifting, but just these are, we always have to remember that with numbers, right? They're always shifting. So this is just crazy because we're talking about, we're talking about less than 5% organic matter returning to soil. That's easy. That'll happen if we just start doing no-till and just don't try hard. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? And meanwhile, we're going to be having carbon credits, hopefully. And we're having that one guy over here who took Darren Doherty's course and was like, oh! And his thing is like insane, and the other guy is not so good at it over there. We make up for that. That's reality. We're going to have people who don't do it. Luckily, there's so much room. But we have to get that 20%, 30%, 40% marker to create its own tipping point. It's a social tipping point. And then it will be a, a biological, a climate tipping point. All right. So our muscular mycorrhizal fungi, right, is responsible for a third of all carbon sequestered in our soils globally. In the northern temperate zones, it can account for 47% of the carbon in the soil. So organic no-till. Why do I say organic no-till, Matt? Well, in Iowa, if you say no-till, they're spraying Roundup like this across their fields. And that's their version of, of no-till. And it's totally toxic, and it's killing the soil. And so when you kill the soil, you release a carbon because the soil structure that's being lost is the carbon. So when we till, we're also creating weeds. And when we keep in mind that when we don't till, we head in secession, right, towards the forest, which means it's more fungal. And eventually, you end up in like, like the evergreens or something, or like, uh, you know, like the uh, old growth forest. But the reality is that we need to transition and be sick. We need to go further. We need to follow the secession and start eating more perennial food because that is what no disturbance is. I mean, someone this week, on my thing was like, Matt, you're talking about chop and drop, da da da, da. I'm in Missouri in my garden. You know, I till it up every year, and there's always weeds everywhere. And I'm like, listen to the weeds. What are they saying? <laughs> and it's because he's in a climate where it's like, Perfect for perennials because it's fun naturally fungal, tons of water, the plant roots uh, that are permanently there and the fungi together are this beautiful fabric weave in the soil that captures the nutrients that would be lost because Missouri is constantly raining. So then water, because it's like distilled water, is pulling the minerals out of the soil constantly. So, you know, we got to keep these things in mind. That's why that garden doesn't work great. And that's why, you know, orchards work great there. You know what I mean? We got to understand where we're at. Um, and we also have to understand where we need to be because perennial cultures last longer because on a hard year, you're still going to get, you know, some food. Your plants are going to, like, maybe take some steps back, but they're not going to die with <coughs> these giant trees. They're just going to yield less on that dry year. All right, so step two, growing forests. If you guys can see the dark brown or uh, the dark green that extends all the way down here, all the way down here, across Europe, across Southern Asia, middle of Africa, um, that's where forests were 8,000 years ago. 8,000 years ago, we were already doing a lot of changes to the earth. So just keep that in mind. This isn't like a point A, point B thing. There's a longer story. We're just jumping in the middle. This is what we estimate, National Geographic estimates, to be the remaining forest. It's probably a lot less now. Um, 
and, and it's also hard to calculate these sort of things. So we're losing our forests at such a rapid rate. Um, this is a really good one. This is America. Really clear forest lossage. And the thing to think about is it was logged so many times that what we have is all like secondary, third, fourth growth, and it's not natural. And what we think of as natural is actually like really hard to find. There's very few untouched places. There's very few places that were managed well up to this day by humans. Not to say that we can't. Um, and then, so I just wanted to add this in here. Notice how the top of Africa has no forest 8,000 years ago. I mean, it was a rich savanna. There, like, where did all the animals come from that they were killing in the Colosseums? You know, it was coming from northern Africa. We literally removed all the animals, and then we started farming it and killing it, and then we turned it into a desert. What happened in the Middle East? And so we're going to hopefully reverse all those things soon. We need to revegetate as much as possible. And that's me right there. This is uh, one side of my, um, my hill. Or my family's hill. <laughs> all right, so rewilding really needs to happen because wild systems don't need management. And that's where we need to go. Because I can't manage a wild forest better than a bear like, and a wolf and a mountain lion family can. I mean, the complexity of their processes, we can't mimic with machines or even with our hands or our digestive tracts. Too many things going on. So we need to rewild. So to just show you what's possible, this is nine years. Wow. I'll do it again. This is nine years. Wow. This is China. Such a short amount of time. And this is what it started off as. In China, the Lus Plateau is where the Han Dynasty began, where agriculture began. That's, they're the dominant, uh, they're the majority of, of China. They're the dominant ethnic group. And the thing with them is they started there, and then they left, and then the capital moved. The reason they left is because they farmed it to death, and then they let people graze it to death. And the reason people in northern China have eyelids that go straight down is to protect their eyesight. Because the dust from this place was a 10,000-year-old problem, and they literally physically adapted to the dust. Because if I went and lived there, I'd go blind. Maybe not now because they're fixing it. But this dust is the reason they called the Yellow River. The river that moved every time they had the dikes, they built up the dikes, and then when the, the dynasty was going to change because they were doing the job well, the dikes would break and then it would shift and kill 20 million people. It was what's called China's sorrow, this river. This river gets all its dust from here. And they fixed it in nine years. Wow. And the way they did it, super impressive. You guys can go to Google Earth and prove that they created all these terraces to yourself. The thing is, this is really cool. So in under 10 years, it was like nine and a half. The Los Plateau projects transformed 35,000 square kilometers, and it was 3.5 million hectares. Seven million acres. Good job. He knows it. Uh, from a land of desertification and erosion to one of abundance and beauty for only $500 million. 
that's $143 per hectare, per hectare, $14 per hectare per year. It even led to China's law. Oh yeah, and the part I'm missing here, actually this is an old version, this, this gets fixed. Um, wow, I can't even believe I didn't erase that. So what happened was that this right here, the 35,000 went viral and they changed Chinese law and it opened up to 500,000 square kilometers because what they said was, wow, we should just make this because it, it turned profitable because they had nothing and now they have all this fruit culture. So everything that's 20% slope or steeper in rural China must be perennial. Yes. And so what they figured out was they can make money doing this. And so it's $14 per, per, per hectare over 10 years. And so it swept, and, and they, they, the other provinces forced the government to change. And the way they got this started, you guys are gonna love this. The way they got this to start was they gave them control of the land. They gave them 99 year leases. And that just shows how flexible the Chinese are getting. They're like, yeah, we'll use capitalism like this, and we'll use this like this, and we'll... If only Americans will be like, yes, I will make conservative choices here, and I'll make liberal choices here when it makes sense. Exactly. Right? Because at times you're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to hold off on giving you that money, Bobby. you got to earn a little bit. I'm going to be a little bit conservative with you. Okay, I'm going to work hard, right? And other times you're like, you know what? We're just going to splurge on this because... This is going to, in the long term, be the most positive thing possible. And it may seem like I'm wasting all this money, but oh man, this is an investment in the future. Right? It's like having an amazing library in your community. Is there an actual like monetary value you can actually put on that? No. Having an amazing library is life-changing for some families. A lot of I would, I would agree. So anyway, my friend Neil Speckman, I mentioned him earlier, he's doing this in Saudi Arabia. So this right here was this. Look, it's that dusty nothingness again. And then he turned it into this in three years. What did he do? No bare soil in three years. He did it with rainwater. He didn't bring in compost. He used plants that could grow there. And some of these trees make enough oil to make $400 a year per tree. So he's showing the locals, and the, the coolest part about this is it's holistic, right? The locals want this because they want to graze their animals so they can continue their animal husbandry, which is why they were nomads. It's in their blood. They can't fight it. You create a way for them to do who they are, to be like, make their grandfather proud. They're going to do it and build some schools for women to read at the same time. <laughs> and then you'll see amazing things happen too. Yes. So, um, and if you don't believe me, just check out the work of Greg Mortensen, uh, Stones Out of Schools, uh, Three Cups of Tea. Educated women in, these, in Afghanistan and Pakistan don't raise terrorists. No, they don't. They don't let, they don't let their son go do that. And if the imam you know, contradicts them, they go, well, actually, it says it right here. I can read. So just saying. <laughs> Schools are important. All right, especially for girls. Um, yeah, we can, we can work out in the fields, and the girls can go to school and then teach us later. Perhaps. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, at least that's what my son wants to do. He's like, Dad, I'm ready to go do anything but school. <laughs> like, we, have to, 
work on essays today, son. Logic is important. That was today. Um, but yeah, he just wants horses and wants to be all out there just being physical, working with animals. Poor guy. All right, so, but we'll get into him later in the talk. Uh, I got to go faster? I'm sorry, I'll hurry up. I, I'm enjoying myself. All right, so step three, we got to restore the oceans. We have people here who are experts in this, so I'll tread lightly. We need, to, <laughs> we need to liberate the water. How many people see concrete trapping our water? We gotta liberate that water. That ain't right. It needs to touch the ground to recharge the aquifers, to recharge the groundwater, to touch the trees, and then touch into the network of fungi and tree root systems that should go from the coast to the coast. Should be no break, unless there's physical uh, bar barriers like rock. Okay, so we need to induce meander. We need to bring back the sway in the water because the sway slows it down in life has a chance to take root. Uh, we need to ban ocean harvesting. We gotta ramp up the life. We gotta stop taking out, and we gotta invest in the ocean for a time. What is that? Ocean harvesting? Yeah. Anything you take out of the ocean, we gotta stop it. What do we take and out I, of the ocean? And I'll explain why, all right, I'll explain why. Okay, so we need to rewild the coast like Veta La Palma. They drew in the water in and they brought back their wetlands. The wetlands are, and they only take like a predator would. They never drain it or take all the, the fish. Chinampas are another solution here. We, we let the water in, we work with the water. This is 3D vertical farming. I love this. My caveat is I would like to fund these kind of operations to not sell this. I want them to grow it and cut it for five to 10 years. Because we need the soils, because the oceans have soils and they're fungal based. There's four major soils to the ocean. We don't think about these things, but we need that carbon that's trapped in the ocean to go back into the soil and there. That's the closest place we can put it. It has to go into biodiversity. So we need to grow and cut. But what's gonna happen is the base layer of life and centropy, and the ocean's going to explode. And we're gonna see the kind of oceans that like Jacques Cousteau had, that his son laments that he can't have. Have you seen him talk about how bitter he is? He's pissed. He's like, yeah, I've seen the videos. The ocean's empty. And it's empty, it is. So we need to ban and bring back. And by the way, almost all the ocean life is on the coast. So if we really want to get serious, don't focus about Japan. Don't focus about these other people. Do it here. Make it happen here. And just like Alaska, where they're like, when we only took 30%, it exploded. It's the same thing. We take, we step back, we'll see it explode, and then we'll be like, wow, let's bring in the let, let's encourage predators now and observe them and see how this works, and then start acting like the predators. So our system will be so vibrant and will support that. So that means we need artificial reefs. We need them to be like windbreaks for life, just like they are in our land-based systems. These artificial reefs seed life. They're like that edge, right? Where you have that two ecosystems meeting and then it, it expanding. All right, step four, I'm with you. Um, we gotta support and generate biodiversity. You guys know this is what happened in the 80s to our seeds? Whoa. That's what happened. We're from hundreds on the seed catalog down to less than 20, less than 30, Ridiculous 
low amounts. And that's why you have places like Baker Creek that started off, Seed Saver Exchange, because there was nothing. People demanded that it came back. So the seed currency. All right, so the seed economy is this metaphor economy that is real. The, the first economy was seed-based. We had seeds, you're like this. What, so we collected the seeds. We started making, we started experimenting, we started making porridge. Someone left their porridge out, it got all funky. Mama said, you gotta eat that porridge. I'm not eating that porridge. Right, well, I will cook it on the fire and then you will eat it. And then it expanded and that was bread. Someone left, they had so much abundance that they left their juice out. Or they left their grapes in a container or a hollow of a rock out. And it got all bubbly. And they're like, well, this is all we have, so we have to drink it. And then they're like, this is the best thing I've ever drank. <laughs> that was alcohol. Yeah. It all came out of abundance, all comes from collecting nature, all comes from seeds, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet they were seed saving and then saving those seeds for food. So currently, we work for the economy of the dollar, and then we spend that money on food. For my children, that's not such a good deal for the way things are headed, because there's less jobs, they're less reliable, there's less money, there's more inflation, there's more hours working for crop failures, foodborne illnesses on the rise, nutrition dropping, prices on the rise. That's a lose-lose situation. Yep. That makes me angry and sad. <laughs> the reality is we want to work less and spend less, right? That would make me happy. But what, the, what that means, so controversial, is that we want to shrink the economy of dollar. Which is a controversial thing. So um, what happens when we focus on buying seed or things that are like seed, whether it's something to start need, whether it's equipment to start a business, when we are stepping into this regenerative economy, we are creating exponential growth of the food. The, and all these things we keep doing create more, right? The bees create more bees, you know what I mean? It's this exponential growth that keeps growing. It's wealth, literal wealth at a certain point. We start trading it for other forms of capital, we start selling it for money. And then our health improves because it's the best possible thing. Over time, that turns into food stability, peace and prosperity. The Middle East is fighting over water and food. It's not religion. It really isn't. Go look at how the water's doing over there and where the water is. Yeah, and they'll use that. They'll use that religion all day long to keep it going, to keep the water elbow. Get away from that, right? Uh, we see ideology being used on us here too, right? All right, so we got to get the seed economy, we got to get the regenerative economy going, we got to start seed saving, we got to be plant breeding. You know, Brad Gates, guys, he made 60 new types of tomatoes in 20 years. What? I'm, help, I'm helping him uh, get his stuff together. He's going to come out with books, he's going to come out with courses, he's got all these crazy awesome ideas. I'm just like, hey, have you thought about this? He's like, oh, I'm doing it. He's <laughs> like rockets. So, this, if you notice, they all look similar, don't they? This is what happens if you just let your, 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 your squash open pollinate. You get a great diversity. You get more resistance. You get thicker flesh. They get happy. So I adapted this corn. We need, to, we need to start adapting. We need to start breeding new things. We need to take to a new place. I mean, the way that you took you know, meat from a place of sweetness to a place of dryness. You know what I mean? We need to do that with a lot of things, right? 
Um, and then we need to bring biodiversity back. We need to bring the animals back, not just our food crops. So this is us. These are our food animals. And the green dots, that's the wild animals, people. That's all we got left. The green dots are the wild animals. Everything else is our, our cattle, and, the, and this is us. So it's a real issue. Um, extinction is linked to human population growth. These are real issues um, that we have to tackle. Um, luckily, the human population overgrowth thing um, is now flipping into a new crisis um, that is not good either, but that is no longer a problem because we no longer are producing as much as we can in the past. I don't know if you guys know, but it's very hard to have children nowadays. And most of our children are not going to have the ability to reproduce as easily as their grandparents did. So that population thing is not something as looming as we think it is. All right, so habitat. We need to create habitat for our pollinators, our birds, milkweed plants. We need to be rewilding the, the urban landscape. The mastodons are not here. We might be bringing back the elephants or other large animals. Because I mean, the other option is that we're going to actually bring back the mastodons and the woolly mammoths, and then put, you guys know about this, right? Pleistocene Park, they're bringing back, they're bringing back the woolly mammoth. There's no other way to manage other than us doing it. So it's permafrost at this point. So they're going to be bringing it back. It's crazy, right? Um, hopefully they don't genetically modify. We'll see. All right, so step five, we're there. Rewilding does not equal chaos. Okay? Neither does anarchy equal chaos. Okay? It just means that, you know, we're, we're acting like nature does, where there's no boss. Unless you're talking about fungi, and they might be the boss. <laughs> um, and if they came from the sky, and they, you know, partnered with Mother Earth, then Heavenly Father and Mother Earth might be fundamentally rooted in all of our conscious. And that's maybe why we keep toeing down through these touchstones in all of our religions, talking about sky gods and spirits and aliens, and why we talk about the earth and connecting with mother. And it's somewhere, right? It's in everything, too. So being willing to dive into that's fun, right? So rewilding just equals biomimicry. It's working with nature, which is permaculture, right? And we all kind of know this. Permaculture equals permanent cultures. But you're like, okay, I get the gardening part, but how does that turn into like everything else, right? Okay, well, it starts with decentralization. It starts with stuff like sociocracy, um, which is building unanimous consent. You can do that in small groups, like families um, and businesses. Uh, holacracy, this is where the roles lead and consent doesn't matter. This happens all the time. Oh, what was it? What was holocratic? Um, well, this is a crazy example. It, it, unless you guys know. Um, so a lot of groups don't self-organize when it comes to like governments. We create things and we set these things in stone. But certain groups are self-organizing. Like the internet. You organize around your role in the group that you form. Um, you kind of like vote each other into places by your likes, your support, your money, entrepreneurship, crowdfunding is a lot like this. Um, our role leads us. It's like who you are doesn't matter on Kickstarter. Your idea, your role in the community is what leads. All right, nonviolent communication, getting past these like 
these enemy images where we're casting this like blame and guilt on each other in order to feel like we're free of that. We're all free of it. That's a thing. Okay, uh, restorative circles, uh, regenerative local economies, more than one form of, of, of capital. We need to tackle this on a local level. Our food, fiber, fuel, and medicine. That means farmers. That means full cycles, like the fiber shed, soil to soil. Like our clothing should all compost, right? Promise here. Um, and then like, like Guayaki, right? They're trying their best to, to be a, like a, a company that every step of the way is doing the right thing, analyzing each step of the way. Did it, I gotta hurry? Yeah. All right, I'm hurrying. Local currencies, you guys know about local currencies? It's not illegal to start your own currency locally. You have a local dollar. Permatexture. Bill Mawson's grandson came up with this concept. I created um, principles for it. We need to create buildings that help our environment, that are designed to last, that support people, and are affordable and ethical and safe and healthy. All right, we need things like this. Um, this is the Wallapini. Um, check those out. Uh, we need alternative energy. Like, we need to use like Pelton wheels, water wheels that just use force, gravity energy, like the Tron which just uses falling water and air pressure for yeah. permanent energy. Um, we can do this in cities now. And the reality is a lot of us need to just get out of the school, stop sitting down, get out of the office, stop sitting down, stop waiting in traffic, and do some human-powered work, and the world would be better for it. Transportation, speaking up, we need to bike places. So many different things that are going on. There's gliders, there's solar power, like, like planes that have gone around the world at this point. There's so many things that are going on. Unschooling caveat, I have my own definition. Um, this is my son. He's been riding since he was four. He really knows horses. He knows horses. He's worked with wild horses. This is his, we're going back in time. People say unschooling. It's really apprenticeship, one-on-one -on -one education, where you're getting real, real education. The way we were taught for thousands of years, either by a parent or the local master of that trade. That's how our brain's designed. So that's what he did, and this woman is like another mother to my son, or another grandmother. Uh, my son has always had instruments. Uh, I've always played instruments and told him I've created an atmosphere of the mind that he can do it. And so he's played everything, and he's, people consider him a prodigy. He can literally, he sounds like Billy Joel when he plays piano. I've never, I don't teach him. He just goes. Um, and then we need to involve nature. That's my, my unschooling uh, piece. We gotta have nature in there because that's the true teacher and we gotta let them be wild. We gotta let them, you know, create their structures. You know, try hunting. Because <laughs> believe me, they don't get anything. <laughs> it teaches them lessons though. Wow, nature's fast. <laughs> I can't catch that rabbit. That chipmunk is smart, right? So, and then like, you know, have them part of the food production because they absolutely can grow all the food our society needs. Literally, elementary schools and middle schools can grow all the food our entire society needs. And they would be, they would be walking around, they grew everything, they would know it, they'd be on cloud nine, the confidence, the kind of people we would create 
they're the, they're the servants to all. They have the credit. They have the know-how. They have the skills. It's real. Oh, I love it. All right, so we got to include them everywhere we can because they love it. All right, so yeah, one-on-one -on -one education, student-centered, project-based, authentic, and then experiential. That's unschooling. I had the caveat of making it permaculture-based. So the future starts now. Remember this? They lack the skills to not be jerks, to not be idiots, to not be standing in our way, destroying the earth, or going invading that country. They lack the skills. They don't know what to do. They did that. I just spawned by going. That's all they know. If you give them 10 options, they're going to be like, wow, I need to sit down and read these. You know what I mean? They need to like digest. Slowing people down is learning. Our society is moving so fast, we're not even learning anymore. So these are the steps. It's simple. It's soil. It's forest. It's water. It's biodiversity. And it's human culture. We need to start these conversations. We need to share the five steps wherever we are in them and at whatever level we're at. And we need to create the transitions in our own lives.
Does that sound fair? Does that sound reasonable? Any objections to that? No? Okay, cool. So, Brianna, will you take the floor? Yeah. Oh, is it? Street, we're a yoga climbing lifestyle company um, based out of Carlsbad for the past 25 years. Um, and so I manage the sustainability program. Um, so I deal with the social and environmental work in our supply chain and the products that we're making. So for sure, saw a lot of overlap, Matt. A lot of times people don't think, they think about what they're eating, but not about what they're putting on. And so there's so much overlap in, in what we're dealing with and working with. And the far, I work with farm, cotton farmers. Um, and the cotton that's made and making sure it's organic and not conventional. So then I work with like finding the difficulties in Monsanto and, um, and all those different entities out there. So yes, to Frank's point, last week we met and um, I'm not from here. I moved here two years ago and I've been at Oceanside for about a year and I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much amazing synergies happening and work that is going on that I would just love to be a part of it and share with it. So. Um, at Prano, when we talk about, specifically since I think the theme's regenerative, um, is we talk about circular economy. So like, how are we producing our products and thinking about not only the best practices of what we're doing at the beginning of the production, but then also the people who are making them and then the customer and who's buying them and then how they're going to be able to get discarded and get rid of it afterwards. I think one of the statistics is 20% of what's in the landfill is um, clothing. So like we design, I think as humans, and this is my personal opinion, we have designed uh, for the idea of, of, uh, of filling a need, but we didn't think about end of life and what was going to happen. And so um, for clothing, it's really important because synthetics, um, we use a lot of depleting resources um, of oil to make your polyesters and your nylons. And so a lot of people don't make those connections. Um, so that's stuff that we that I manage um, is looking at our raw materials, using organic cotton, using recycled contents, looking at um, plant-based synthetics, like what's the future of textiles and how can we minimize our footprint when we're making the shirt that ever, you know, the clothing that everyone's wearing. And then how can we also a lot most of 97% of our production sold or clothing sold in the US is made overseas. So like taking into consideration all of the people in the different countries and the trade agreements and how are people potentially put at risk and not paid living wage to make the clothing that we're able to buy at cheap cost. So Forever 21s are on my shit list. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's kind of, and we, you know, the apparel industry is $3 trillion industry. So, um, and it's all voluntary and unregulated. So it's really important for us to take these initiatives and stances in the industry um, to show that this is what the kind of world we want to live in, right? Like you want to go to your, be able to go to your farmer and go buy your uh, food and know where it came from and all of the conditions around it. And it should be the same with clothing. It should be the same with anything that we're buying. So um, I'm a huge advocate of just the conscious consumer movement and just asking those questions. So we're doing some really cool work. I don't know if anyone's been at our employee warehouse sale. That's usually everyone knows us by that. Um, and uh, we're looking like futuristically ahead to start thinking around where is apparel going and you know how much does people do people need and that's another component is not just to sell to sell but to really say like do you need this and you know are you gonna how much use are you gonna get out of it and when you're done with it how can we help find a way for you to give it back 
so it doesn't go on landfill and how can we help you make more informed decisions along the process. So awesome. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that So everyone, like, so many thoughts came to my mind and questions, and we want to build this network. And like, one of the best things to do is we're all peers here. We're all working on our own projects. You know, there's not like speakers and audience. It's like we're all peers. So think of your questions and think of who said the thing that taught, thought up that question, and make the the action to follow up with that and build that connection with that person over that idea. Because I want to learn a ton from Brianna about that whole model. And Matt talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, mastodons? Like, <laughs> <laughs> mastodons. Uh, so, so that's how we're going to deepen this thing, is what comes to me. But if something else comes to you, do it. Um, OK, next, Laura is here. And Laura O'Connor, O'Connell? O'Connell? Is it O'Connor or O'Connell? Sorry. So Laura was one of the founders of Bioneers, which moving, moving, one of the movers, prime movers that made it real. Is that fair? I helped produce it for nine years at a critical point. Yeah. All right, all right, there you go. I, yeah, definitely. And, and now you're doing indigenous regeneration on the project. Yeah. On Paula. It's um, San San Pascal Indian uh, Reservation up in Valley Central, and. Uh, so basically, thank you, God, thank you. That was amazing. <laughs> and we met last week, and they were fantastic. And I was just, I just took a photo and texted my friends who are in Wales with Prince Charles, your Wendell Berry poem. I said, this is in the bathroom where I am. Check it out. <laughs> so um, I'm going to pass these things around so stay in the five minutes. What's really cool, the thing that I was thinking about while I was late is that I just moved back to a property that my great-grandparents built their first home on when they, they, they met on the boat coming over from Europe as immigrants. So I'm a third-generation immigrant, and I just moved back into the property um, where, they, where I was five years old when I first visited them. And my neighbor next door started this whole conversation with me as he was pruning. I realized my neighbors talked to me. It's like where I came, I lived in Los Angeles for the last ten years, and neighbors don't talk to you. So I was late because I was engaged in getting back to being with people and being connected to the earth and to people. So that's what this is about. This project is. I've done a lot of work in, and I won't go into that in five minutes. But how I found out about this was I was at a fundraiser for Kiss the Ground, which is Ryland and. And uh, you guys know Kiss the Ground. The, the, it's all about, the, it's a film being made and a nonprofit about media that's all about the premise that actually. Um, Compost. Oh my God. Soil compost. Yeah, but the, the Indian, the, the Indian woman, 25 years ago, Bandana Shiva, take this, the carbon out of the, you know, sky and put it in the earth, and that's really what we need to do, right? So this kiss the ground is all about that. So this gentleman, Paul Cannon, is from this native reservation that's like 27 minutes from here, up on the hill. He has, a, he's a musician, but he was born there, and he has come back 35 years later to create, it's a six acre plot, and it's basically completing, complete from soup to nuts, it was an avocado ranch that burned down, and we're launching tomorrow night with the pizza oven, and it's all native plants, teaching the kids on the reservation to grow their own food, solar, water, it's gonna be completely off the grid, because when they turn 21, they each get a plot. 
So basically, it's, it's oh. mentoring these youth on six acres to have a sustainable off-the-grid of their own with every component that everything you just said is happening here. In a little, and so I invite you all to come. And we can tell you more about it. This is the first gathering being co-sponsored by Golden Coast Meat. We're just gonna bring some honey and soda. And Calafia Farms and uh, Ryland. So all of our friends are donating their food and drinks, and please all come. And it's gonna be lighting up this pizza kiln. They're gonna be growing hemp-based. Um, they're going to grow houses and models out of hemp to show how you can do all these different completely. And we're going to have an amphitheater and have concerts. It's going to be a party all the time, doing exactly what y'all just said. Well, thanks. Thanks. All right. All right. All right, so, like, it's just going to keep coming. So I'm going to stop breaking in in between other than to introduce the next one. But, like, I get, it's happening, right? We're all doing this. So let's keep hearing from folks. And it's just gonna, yeah. Tori and Leslie, 3D Ocean Farming. So before we really start, I kind of want to gauge how in depth we should go. Who has heard of ocean farming or green herbs? Most people. Okay. Um, okay, good. That's really awesome. Um, so yeah, we are. Sunken Seaweed, that's our company. It's very young, um, it's less than a month old. Um, so a little background, I'm Leslie, this is Tori. Um, we studied marine ecology um, up north, Humboldt State University. Um, we did a lot of work with marine protected area research. Um, so we basically surveyed intertidal areas to see kind of what the the baseline data was, what was going on there, how we could best formulate marine protected areas to conserve the ecosystems there. Um, so we, we graduated, we were ready to do some marine conservation, and we kind of just got this overwhelming feeling that um, no matter what job we could take on, government or whatever, it wouldn't be enough to really start reversing the multitude of things that are threatening our, our ocean. Right, so it's, it's layer after layer of just really huge looming threats. Um, and so we decided to um, enter the world of enterprise through some nudging by some of our entrepreneurial friends, because uh, it's a scary world for, for us. Business is not, you know, our brains don't really think that way, but it's been a really fun adventure, so. So we're gonna just give you a little background about what's happening with California's kelp forest. So right now you can see, this is Northern California. This is a map of kelp coverage in 2008. This is a map of kelp coverage in 2014. So what we've seen is that it's dropped by 98%. That's a big deal. Kelp's, kelp's a foundational species. It's at the base of the ecosystem in California coastal waters. So without it, so many species lose habitat or too much nitrogen comes in the water that can't get filtered. Okay, so um, this has all occurred um, between 2008 and 2017 now um, with a perfect storm effect. There's been this weird global like water warming coming off the coast along California coupled with these really violent El Ninos has just wiped kelp out. So, so. Yeah, so we decided kelp farms can be the answer 
at least to, to start it off, right? So um, here's a list of eight. We just stuck to the ecological services for the sake of this meeting and everything. Um, but these are some of the, the most foundational um, services that kelp forests can provide, right? So we, we have, in a kelp forest, you're picturing basically the macrocystis, the giant kelp, right, that grows um, half a meter a day. It can grow up to 150 feet, right? Um, in, incredible three-dimensionality there. And, and 700 to 1,000 species live within these, from the holdfasts of the kelp up the stipes and on all of the blades, right? And then there are ephemeral fish coming in. Uh, it's a crucial habitat, spawning area, um, just the rainforest you know, of, of the ocean, really. So um, um, we all know it sequesters carbon dioxide. Um, can be five to six times the rate of a lot of land plants. Um, and it also uh, captures nitrogen at a really perfect rate. I mean, they love nitrogen. Um, they prevent dead zones from, from kind of occurring when there are large kelp forests. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got a great storm surge buffer. So something that's kind of crucial to San Diego area specifically is that if we can create these reef structures of kelp, it, it really lowers the wave energy coming to shore. That's another service they provide. Um, increases water quality where you have vast, dense kelp forests. Um, the water quality just increases it follows. Um, and then another one is um, the most important one, I think, for this crowd. It requires no fertilizer, no fresh water, no pesticides at all. Um, it's basically soaking 24 seven in the oldest mineral bath, right? Um, so it's just this beautiful, just sucking in all of these minerals and, and nutrients, um, and we don't have to do anything. It, we need sunlight, and um, that's pretty much it, yeah. So. So Alcan uh, San Diego use seaweed. Um, as much as we would like to strictly produce seaweed for pollution farming, which is, yeah, something we point. have thought of, um, but very hard to make money off right now at this point in time. We've come down to food, feed, and fertilizer. So, so seaweed's a superfood. It's it's really good for you. Like Leslie said, it, it's just uh, a sponge for minerals and vitamins from the ocean. Okay. Um, as as far as feed goes, we have friends who are doing holistic cattle farming who want to use Kevin, seaweed. Kevin Muno, Montado Farms, holistic rancher. Yeah, he wants to feed it to his cows, which is like reduces methane first. output. Yes, reduces methane output potentially by up to ninety-eight percent, which is kind of incredible. Does it reduce um, water usage? What's that? Does it reduce water usage? I would imagine sure. just because you're you're, you're not feeding your cows so much grain. They require yeah. the most water. Of any yeah, cattle right. feed is a big one, yeah. We also have people like Eddie back here, and he's just this crazy scientist with soil. We would love to give him a boatload of kelp to just see what he can do with it on a farm, yeah. okay? Okay. Um, so yeah, like I said, seaweeds are a superfood. Which we can talk more about one-on-one -on -one if you guys have questions about, but the research is abundant for that one. Cattle feed. Cattle feed we <laughs> talked about. <laughs> Yeah, cows love it. Yeah, cows will seek it out if they're coastal, right? If they know wow. the minerals are there. Um, we got our fertilizer. Kelp is rich in nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and potassium. It has 
so many micronutrients and, uh, and vitamins in it. It's really good for the garden. Cool. Those are all the people helping us out. Woo! And wow. we love you guys. And we'll leave you with a beautiful Jacques Cousteau quote, which is so relevant to today. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening to us. red bricks into co black coffee grounds. So five minutes. Okay, go. I'll kind of just try to ad-live this real quick because I've heard all kinds of really good stuff come out here tonight. Um, whew, give me a second here. <laughs> the aquaponic system behind you guys. Uh, that's something that I built in trying to show people that we can basically through biodiversity and systems that have enough biodiversity that they take care of themselves are like excellent role models for what we have to do. I, don't, I try sort of a really holistic approach. I grew up in a small valley on Molokai in Hawaii and I've been plagiarizing nature for the last almost 50 years. Um, so people ask me like how do I create something like this? Pure biomimicry plagiarization of nature. Uh, trying to put as much diversity as I've copied and stuck in aquariums and observed for months at a time and written down their cycles and then try to introduce their cycles so they play a part in a bigger picture of something that's resilient because it depends on the biodiversity that forms these symbiotic relationships in it. So what I'm doing mostly right now is turning swimming pools into fertility hubs. Yeah. Fertility hubs being like what this is. You guys can pull up any one of those. Cody, could you pull that out of there real quick? If you look on the bottom of that, you're gonna see roots clogging that right now because it hasn't been trimmed, but you're actually gonna see humus all around that pot. If you wipe your finger on the side pull, of it, pull, pull, pull it out. That's dirt, that's carbon that's been sequestered out of the atmosphere by a few goldfish in a tank. There's four goldfish in there. This has been here for six months. It's had zero fertilizers, that's zero anything added to it other than a little bit of fish food and a little bit of light and water. It uses 2% of the water of conventional farming because it recycles it. If we can look at all of our systems, our company is called Living Earth Systems, and we're constantly trying to incorporate anything we can out of biodiversity into uh, holistic systems that sustain themselves. So, like for myself, I've experimented with growing seaweed, with growing soil, with growing plants. Could you hand me that poster board? Because I got five minutes. I'm gonna spit a bunch at you guys real quick. And just invite you guys to just look at our website and see what we're doing. This is mealworms that eat styrofoam. Uh, take a closer look at that. This is actually a superworm, a zucopterus. Uh, one university did a study on mealworms. I've had this worm in my sights for years. Um, and when I finally came here to California, first thing I did was buy 20,000 of them. I bought 20,000 of them, I put them with styrofoam, and they indeed eat styrofoam at 10 times the rate that normal, that normal mealworms eat styrofoam, which most people don't even know about that. After about five years into my study, I realized that Stanford started a study two years ago. They've conclusively, with electron microscopes and every scientific, I went to the fourth grade, by the way. That's cool. <laughs> one of the best surf breaks in the world outside my door in Hawaii. You don't stay in school. <laughs> Mother, Mother Nature brings yeah. you to that same school. So, like, but it's really amazing to see this university with all their incredible equipment, like, say, oh yeah, our electron microscope and our blah 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 gives us an analysis that it truly is carbon again and organic matter. 
And so we've come full circle with it. They realized through a, a gut bacteria that these guys actually turn it into an organic carbon-based material again. So we're taking it further, we're growing plants in it. Not that we necessarily want to eat the vegetables from those plants right now, but I do have several isolated aquariums where I've been feeding the fish for a year and a half now, the mealworms, as their whole entire diet. Um, and they are fine. So it seems to me pretty obvious that some of those uh, experiments are you know, on the right track and that they are indeed turning it into organic material. So also with at Frank's house, trying to take what you guys have here in Hawaii, everyone would come visit my farms and go, wow, you guys have the best soil in the world. Of course it's so incredible. Guess what? We have some, we do not have the best soil in the world. We have a basalt-based soil without much phosphorus or potassium in it. So when I come here, I get to play superhero gardening because you have tons of potassium and phosphorus and what you're actually lacking is organic material. But not only organic material, the creatures that are in service to you from the amphipods that shed their skins and put calcium in the soil to the roly-polies that actually digest heavy metals and incorporate them from the mycorrhizal cultures. We work with several mycorrhizal and myceliums and we build networks that in a very short time turn something like uh, what you guys call, uh, what is it you guys call it, decomposed granite? That is the basics of real soil. It's millions of years old. It's been broken down by all the elements in the universe, basically, in time and everything. And now when you add creatures that physically go through it, people have been farming with worms for years. Through my observations, I decided, why are they only using a surface worm when the deep worms and the middle worms all work together and they trade off their manures? So I started putting them all together and got like superior results. And because I only went to the fourth grade, I was criticized by the universities and such in Hawaii, being on a really small island, where, oh, this guy, don't listen to him, he's gonna steer you wrong. They didn't have an organic program. So their analysis of soil was it needs nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and you need to go by what we do, a pH test, and you need to stick these synthetic fertilizers in it, and that's the answer. That has been the destruction of Hawaii. So my business has been bioremediation of pineapple and cane fields, and trying to put the life back into the soil. And so through growing up a valley and seeing the way the earthworms and the trees dropping leaves do it, and the worms eating it back into soil, that example is already set for me by the most perfect teacher of all, Mother Nature. So taking, I finally got my foot in the door with a 50 acre mango farm that I was able to build a pond, put long rows of vetiver grass in, take some of the local pest plants there that were actually nitrogen fertilizers, teach people that they weren't in the enemy, put them in a long row and coppice them, put them with something else that I strategically planted to compost with because I was looking for the mineral matter. So I used vetiver grass, which has a 20 foot root system and mines minerals from where plants would never touch it in the subsoils, the top six, eight inches of them. So it would bring it to the surface, I would turn it into a green matter, and then I would have these ponds filled with fish. I would feed the fish a seaweed fern that I grew so I didn't have to bring in any fertilizers and put lights on the tanks at night, let them eat the insects that came out of the field, lay everything down, and then within six months, we were able to build like two tons of super nutrient-rich soil. And what I went into before that I was criticized by the universities, I decided why not have it tested? Let's look at its nutrient density. We actually were off the chart on the nutrient density. Part of it was because of the three different worms that traded their manures. Part of it was because of the mineral miners. And part of it was improvising on what was there and we were able to use and show people what was available that we could build soil out of air and light. 
So the idea, so what's happened now over the last 45 years or so is a culmination of raising fish, raising earthworms, doing aquaponics, and the systems we build, living systems, the, the aquaponics or the swimming pool or the pond or whatever it is, almost always plays a base, like a fertility hub, that's able to create a biomass, whether that be a floating fern or a duckweed, or taking celery out and chopping it and laying it in rows and letting the worms eat it back into humus, basically taking carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it back into the soil. That's kind of the basics of it. Most of our systems run off solar systems that we build that are filled with rainwater. So that's, sorry, that's a long five minutes, but <laughs> check it out. Jamie, yeah. you we're gonna, we're gonna end on chocolate, which is a oh, yeah. thing to end on. Sweet. And we've got yeah. Jamie and Team Ray, uh, and then we'll open it up. So, Jamie Phillips. So I definitely do not have a scripted talk here in any way, but just inspired by what I've been hearing tonight and actually thought on my way driving over here. And something I see that I mean, you know, I'm not a big, you know, permaculture farmer and I don't, you know, have a, a you know do this major seaweed thing which I think is amazing. Um, I'm kind of like a normal guy, and I had some assets to invest, and, and I think for me, and I look at all of us, I see us as a community, and what we each do in our own little ways is what's so important. Um, for me, it was really important, I lived in New York City, it's really important not to like take my dogs for a walk out in the street and watch some shit and, and then throw it in the trash can and not know what happened to it. I actually started a worm composting thing up on my roof, so I would huh. keep my dog shit, feed <laughs> it to the worms, and then we had like some, you know, planters up on the roof, which we planted vegetables in. So it was really a joy to like look at what I do relative to waste myself. Um, I also looked at, I mean, a big thing for me right now is packaging. I'm appalled by having to, because I don't grow all my own food as much as I can or buy it from you know, trade it with Eddie or, or you know, come and steal from Frank's trees or, you know, <laughs> something like that. Um, or for me, joining a CSA, you know, belonging to a farm where I could go and like, you know, support my farmer and yet get the food I need without going to Whole Foods or any other place to get a whole bunch of packaging with my food. And the packaging is pollution to me. It's like, so it's been fun for me to try and source out, including Yesterday, I went to Major Market in Fallbrook, and I had asked, I said, look at um, Aaron, who stocks things there. I said, I really like to buy salt, but I, I just want like a pound of salt. I don't want to buy a big container with my salt. She actually started carrying salt in bulk because I asked her. Yeah. And, that, and those are the small things that I think we can do. You know, each of us, and I can go on in plastic bags. It's like, I swore I would never, buy another, pla or use another plastic bag in the produce section of the supermarket because I didn't have time to go to the farm, farmer's market to get shit. Never a plastic bag. I would like, you know, I would carry things out in my pockets before I would buy another <laughs> plastic bag. Can you talk so, about your conservation work? And yeah, conservation work. So um, for me, I did have funds of my own to invest. I had 
some family funds that I was able to invest. To me, it was like, um, excuse me, do I really want to put my money in Wall Street to make more money? But what am I doing at the same time? It's like supporting a, a, you know, a very unsustainable you know, culture of you know, agri-tur, agri-extraction bullshit stuff and you know, everything else that we don't need in a consumptive society. So get my money out of Wall Street, invest in land to me, which was the first land we bought was in, or I bought was in New York, and it was that the time up. One Okay. So bought, um, bought forest land, relatively cheap in upstate New York. Best investment ever. I haven't cashed it in, but I haven't needed to. But it's wonderful to watch 15 years later this forest that was kind of butchered growing back. And I must say, I can't think of it. I think we paid $47,000 for however many acres. But I'm just like, best investment ever. Just to watch nature restore itself over a period of time. That, so we also started a foundation, big supporter of Waldorf schools, which are absolutely bringing kids back to nature and, you know, and learning you know, from mentors, learning from people, not from a traditional school system. Um, we started a green cemetery. So you no longer, we don't let anybody who's embalmed be in the cemetery. Um, and the graves are hand dug. Um, and the cemetery will ultimately grow back into a forest. Um, we're doing that on the East Coast, and we're talking to somebody in Fallbrook to do it um, here. Right. That's a great piece for your land up there. And center your center. It, it, yeah, it, it could indeed happen. Um, so I, I, again, will go back to us as community. We need to support each other. When you see one of your friends at the supermarket loading some lettuce, organic lettuce in a plastic bag that he got there, it's like, wow, dude, that, that's very cool. You know, what do you do with that plastic bag? <laughs> so, uh, you know, we need to support each other, not in a vindictive way, but, you know, come on. We all know what's right, and we're all victims of our culture, which is kind of laziness relative to it. Anyway, thank you. Let's keep building on this community. two companies, these are just business cards of Wild Playground. The first company is Ecology Artisans. Started three years ago, and the idea was to bring ecological landscape design to landscaping. Because it was just mow blow, spray pesticides, let it wash off, hard compacted soils, a lot of stuff that Eddie's been doing. Uh, we don't do it as awesome as Eddie does it <laughs> at this stage, but our point is to soak as much water into the landscape as possible because we need to recharge the groundwater, we need to induce meander and all these different things. Um, my other company that I co-founded with my wife, Lola, is Wild Playground, and what we really focus on is helping people and humans human well. Because we keep finding time and time again through life coaching, through one-on-one -on -one mentorship, through retreats to Peru, through just conversations where we sit at a festival and someone rolls up to us and just starts spewing their life story at us. We're like, I guess we're just exuding this for that to happen. But what we end up finding is that people keep running into these systems that we're all a part of, this, you know, this top-down hierarchy that Matt was discussing, that we're all subject to. And a lot of that is because we have distanced ourselves from the wild. 
we've domesticated ourselves to such an extent that we're automatons, we're robots, we're cyborgs, everything. And a huge part of what we like to do with our company is finding ways that we can kind of break and reprogram ourselves as well. We do it all the time through our work with our clients. And a huge part of that is finding out where the story is and the self-imprisonment that happens and also that giving away of our power to these structures. And so we find different ways, depending on where the person's at, to help them kind of rewild themselves in that manner. We don't really per se specifically say that, but Frank brought it up and invited me to talk about it. So I was like, well, hmm, how do we actually, what are some ways and tools that we go about doing that? So my wife and I, we went through and just kind of looked at some of the stuff and some of the three questions that I'm not gonna go into given the small amount of time, but things to consider for ourselves and our families and our culture is what does it mean to be a human today? And what do we want it to mean to be a human? The other one is what would a wild culture look, act, and be like in today's world? Can it even happen? Are we just so far beyond the precipice? Like when I was talking with Ben Falk, where we got kind of in this downer moment, where we're like, that's kind of shitty. <laughs> um, but can we, can we kind of jump back from this precipice using all these tools that we're all here pushing forward? I think we can. And then how do we get that wild culture through our individual actions? And some of those individual actions, so that's what it all comes back down to and what I constantly read in the books I study and the people I talk to is that it's personal responsibility. Mm. We constantly do not take personal responsibility, myself included. I find ways all the time where I'm a horrible dad or I brought, forgot my bag to bring into the grocery store to put my lettuce in. I went shopping today and I made sure I brought all my bags, so it was good. Um, but some of those things that we want people to kind of put in their mind is that it's the personal responsibility first. Just don't put the blame on someone else. Don't put it on anyone else. It's just, we have an amazing amount of power that we don't actually know because we're so distanced from the wild and our true, true self and our power. Um, so one, one of the ways that you can do that is daily activism, participation through our choices, time in nature, see nature everywhere. This is nature, it's concrete. Everything is coming from this earth. Nothing is coming from outside this earth, outside of like asteroid dust and an asteroid once in a while. It's all Earth. Everything. Everything's nature. Plastic's nature. So it's good to help not demonize it in that aspect. The other aspect is reattuned to natural cycles. Our 12-month calendar is bullshit. It's for ego. It's purely ego-based. It comes from just these people who we are still trying to pretend like we want to be, or we are, or we think we are. I mean, look at our president. Um, so a huge, a huge aspect of that is finding out how you fit in with those natural cycles. They really do happen. You don't have to believe me. Just pay attention to the moon for three months and see how you are feeling within that, that cycle. Changes depending on the sign. I found it myself. I'm actually a hyperactive on full moons most of the time. Depends on the sign, but I'm really down on uh, new moons. And it's reversed for my wife. So it's good, so we help have that interpersonal relationship and communication. Um, and create and encourage biodiversity wherever you are. That's what brought me to ecology artisans. Wanted to see more biodiversity, wanted to see more life everywhere. It just is what we need, right? Altered states of consciousness, both induced by entheogens like psilocybin, ayahuasca, wachuma, which is San Pedro, mead, alcohol, communication, healthy tobacco, breathing exercises, meditation, whatever you want that fits within your personal feeling, go with it. And then I'll wrap up pretty soon. Um, 
And then also, this is a huge one that I constantly battle with every day, which is remove the imprison imprisonment of shoulds, expect expectation that you have or that you have your dad thinks you should do, your mom, or your sister, your brother, your lover, and perfectionism. If we can kind of like just let things be good and not perfect, we can avoid a lot of the pain that we put ourselves in. And tools to start with, like I said, moon tracking, barefoot walking is really awesome. We just did it in the Sequoias and it was excellent. I was gonna do it here, but I didn't wanna do the health code thing here. Um, nudity, nudity without a sexual agenda. We are so imprisoned by having to wear clothes all the time. It was so frustrating. We're walking through there, we're like, it's great being barefoot, but damn it, it would be amazing to be naked right now. Like in this beautiful 77 degree weather under these Sequoias that are 3,000 years old. Yeah. And we just don't get so fine the ways in your time to feel comfortable in your skin because it helps reduce some of that self-body image that we all suffer from media and everything. Uh, drink water, obviously, and meat. Eating whole, healthy, <laughs> nourishing foods. Know your farmer, know who produces it, know how it's produced. Again, personal responsibility and finding your tribe. Woo! Those are all ways to help you. part of my three to five minutes of talking to just give gratitude to Frank yeah. um, and, to, and to everyone here that is doing, really taking a stand for what they're doing because it just reminds me of like what Paul Hawkins says about how we're the immune system right now of our earth and we're choosing that. We didn't inherit that, you know, we, we're, we didn't inherit these values and the, these practices and so we're actually choosing to create a culture and do culture repair and be the immune system of our earth right now. And I'm really grateful to people who are catalysts for that. Um, I have a company called Chocolato. We're based in Poway um, and we make chocolate. Um, we also have another branch called Asana Foods where we make, we make granola and almond butters. It's all organic. Um, and I actually just got back from Quail Springs. If you haven't heard of it, it's a permaculture demonstration site teaching 15, 15 to 19 year old kids how to make primitive chocolate um, for a program called Sustainable Vocations. Um, and it was truly like it's a program, three week program for them to be learning about permaculture, um, regenerative skills in everything from interpersonal relationships to how to tend rabbits and animal husbandry. So it's really amazing. Um, I got my permaculture. Uh, got into permaculture at the turn of the century. The year was 2000. <laughs> and I'd been backpacking in Hawaii for three months and then plugged into a permaculture farm called Laakea. And that's where I was inter introduced to chocolate um, and the magic of it. And since then, it's been following me around the world to West Africa and all over the place. And um, I was actually getting my, my master's um, in ecology and, and sustainability education and was eating a shitload of cacao when Basically, I realized like chocolate, you can, I can gather a room full of people um, through having a chocolate company and teach them about anything I want. So I started a chocolate company and I teach permaculture. <laughs> um, and it's really cool. And the mission is to be regenerative from seed to mouth. So um, how do we create a regenerative economy where we are? You know, obviously, like how do we get the highest, most purest form of, of chocolate? Um, how is it contributing to a local economy? How is it, you know, building 
the communities where it's grown? And how is it, when you take it off the shelf and you eat it, how is it regenerating the bodies and not creating a toxic environment? So we use you know, super pure cacao grown with spring water, carried, harvested and you know, carried to the facility on muleback. Um, it's off the charts in antioxidants. We blend it with the world's most sustainable sweetener, which is um, ecologically sustainable sweetener, coconut sugar, which is a perennial tree um, from our friends at Big Tree Farms. And then we infuse it with different uh, foods like medicinal mushrooms, which is really good for your immune system and all kinds of stuff. Um, maca root from Peru. Um, so we're actually creating regenerative ecologies in our bodies and minds. Um, cacao is one of the most uh, chemically diverse uh, foods on the planet. It has 300 chemicals that are all rewiring our, our nerves and brains. Um, so, so yeah, I'm just honored to be a part of, of this whole kind of system and ecology we're creating uh, culturally to help regenerate and repair um, repair the world. <laughs> Is that, I'm sure, am I within my time? For yeah. <laughs> So, I'm thinking about Joe, who's been holding down the meadery. Uh, Joe is our director, or COO of Chief of Operations. Um, but I think we can take it from here, Joe. If you want to take off, I can close up. Oh, I don't mind saying close up the tree to be here. We are. OK. So um, if, OK, so Joe's still here. Laura has a question. I do want to, let's, let's think about how we're going to structure everyone sharing what they're doing, because that's going to be really powerful, I think, is how we do that. Um, Biller, maybe you have an idea or a thought? Well, actually, I wanted to kind of touch on what I was rushing, because trying to be aware is that everything that y'all are doing is something that could be taught to these young regenerative farmers in the making at the at the reservation. So I really seriously invite each and every one of you, whatever you're doing, to think about if you'd like to bring that as an offering. There's actually one flyer that you can probably read. I didn't say that either. It's right here. Those little ones have my phone number and my email on it. And that's what I wanted to say is that it, weaving, it can be a, a, another place actually on the earth where this playground can continue together. Alright, so should we just do like two minutes for everybody going around the table? Does that work? Yeah? Any opposition? No? Alright.